0: Welcome birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Bander Podcast, or Birders Talk Birding. And this is the second episode of 2021. 2021 has gotten off to a terrific start for me as a birder. I have I'm a lister, unapologetic lister. And I keep lists of all sorts of things. But one of the things, big things, that I've been focusing on as a list recently is my Washington state list. I sort of got a late start at state listing as a birder and missed chasing a lot of birds in my first 20 or so years here in Washington. I've been here over 30 years. But in the last 10 years, I'm catching up. And one of my goals was to get 400 birds in Washington before I die. 400 species of birds, and I have been cracking on that. Today I got number 399. Not that I'm planning on dying anytime soon. Hopefully, I'll get way more than 400 now. But I got a common grackle today. Bruce Labar and I tried yesterday at a place for the common grackle. Where one was sighted a few days ago in King County and didn't get it after a couple of hours of trying. But we discovered after we got home that it was seen literally minutes before we got there. It was right at the crack of dawn yesterday it was seen. So I thought today, it looked like this little window in the rain. It wasn't going to start raining until maybe a half hour after sunrise. So Marion and I got up early, drove up to King County, got in place just as the sun was coming up. Marv Brees. Rolled in right after we did it, did another birder, and shortly after sunrise, sure enough, a small group of blackbirds flew into the wires over the uh, abandoned granary site that this bird's been seen at, and sure enough, common grackle right there on the wires. Got a great look at it, anguished over ID for just a brief moment, but we're confident, and we all saw the common grackle, so that was great. And this has been a terrific last two months. Uh, In 2000, and 20, I got three new, uh, three, four, excuse me, four new uh, state birds. First was Siberian X Center. Right after I got back from Texas, I got Siberian Accentor. Then come summer, went out and saw Mike Denny in Walla Walla area, and he helped get Ken Brown and I in a great gray owl. We talk about that in the Mike Denny episode. A little gull came in October with Ken Brown out at Point No Point. And then just a flurry of birds in the last month or so. Yellow-bellied sapsucker was in, in uh, Everett on December 8th. And then just a few days ago, hooded oriole in Bay Center, Washington, uh, down by the southern southwestern coast of the state. And winter wren, a first state record, showed up right Almost at home in Orting, just a few miles away from here by Will Brooks. Found a winter wren, got winter wren for number 398, and 399 was common grackle today. Uh, So I am really excited. What'll be number 400? I don't know. We'll see. Hopefully something will show up soon. Well, my guest today is not a lister. He's a storyteller. A really good birder, it sounds like, but a storyteller too. Brian Ellis is my guest today, and he hails from the Midwest, is a professional storyteller. He's an author, he's got TV shows going, all sorts of stuff. He works the birding festival circuit as a storyteller and a featured speaker. And it was really fun to talk to Brian Ellis. He goes by stage name, or Brian Fox Ellis. But Brian Ellis was a really enjoyable guest today to talk to. I hope you enjoy the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 88 with Brian Fox Ellis. Brian, welcome to the podcast. I really appreciate you being on with me. I am so looking forward to hearing your stories. Uh, Storytellers are my best guests, so I have high expectations for you today. So we'll see how it goes. Great. I
1: I have to admit, I'm a big fan of this uh, bird banter, and I've been listening quite a bit lately, so I'm honored to be on. You've had such esteemed guests of late.
0: Well, you know, I try to keep it mixed up. I try to have just interesting people. The reason I do this is because what's not fun for a birder talking to birders? Uh, So I get to talk to some really cool people, and I'm excited about talking to you today. So Brian, I I, want to start by how the heck did you get into a career, or I don't know if you call it a career, but how did you work a a gig out of telling stories about birding stuff and just storytelling?
1: (laughs) Well, I've been a full-time storyteller for more than 40 years. I started while I was still in college and actually helped to pay to. With uh, storytelling gigs. And I've also been a birder for most of my life. And so it just was a natural marriage to, uh, uh, I think for a long time, I was the only full time storyteller who regularly worked the bird watching festival circuit. I'm really happy to say a few others are starting to ride my coattails. and, And many of the great bird watchers are also natural storytellers, but I don't think they they uh, market themselves is that
0: <laughs> anyone who goes on a long road trip with some birders knows that.
1: Yeah. So, you know, back to your question about how this, this came to be when I was in college, I, uh, well, I grew up hunting and fishing and spending a lot of time outdoors was a boy scout. Our family went camping every summer, several times a summer as a boy scout, we went camping every month, including January and February and and in Michigan and Northern Ohio, where I grew up. And so I just loved being outdoors and birds were just part of the world that I paid attention to. And, and though, you know, we might be sitting there fishing with my dad and my brothers, uh, my dad would talk about the red wing blackbirds or the great blue herons or the birds that we were seeing while we were sitting there. But it wasn't until I got to college that uh, I had a, a history professor. I had a couple of science professors who were birders too, but Larry Guerra was my, um, Uh, was my history professor who was really hardcore and he invited me out on a spring bird count and he was the first guy I knew who used recording devices to uh, to call in birds and was really good at birding by ear and that's where I kind of got hooked and it was at the same time that I began telling stories professionally so I've always uh, focused a lot on the environmental um, education circuit and I work a lot of you know association for interpreters conferences and environmental ed conferences And it's really fun. And I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit in uh, in subjects I would like to talk about. But I now lead bird hikes as Charles Darwin or John James Audubon or Meriwether Lewis. Depending Mm -hmm. on where I'm birding, what birds we might see, I can step into character for the hour and a half or two hours we're out on the trail and quote what they wrote about the birds that we're seeing on the trail. Totally kind of improv performance, which is. Really a lot of fun. So, yes, this has been my job now for 40 years, and I, I never get tired of it.
0: It sounds wild. Did Do you come from a storytelling family, or did this just happen?
1: Well, that's a great question, Ed. And uh, I think uh, the premise is some stories, some families tell more stories than others, but I would, I would argue that all of us have grown up in a storytelling family. You know, I will admit my mom may not have been as good a storyteller as my dad. My mom had her other talents, but it was really my uncle Joe who was one of my early inspirations. I used to joke that uh, he could literally talk about dirty socks and make it funny, and then 20 years later, I saw Clint Eastwood use that line in a movie. <laughs> but it's true, my uncle Joe. That one from anything. your uncle. <laughs> yeah, and and it was hilarious. And we did spend a lot of time fishing, and and fishermen tell stories, and and so yes, I did grow up in a storytelling family. I never thought about it as a career. Uh, Again, until I was in college, I, I actually hitchhiked to Tennessee for the National Storytelling Festival. And I saw people up on stage doing what I'd already been doing for years. I actually made a living as a storyteller for five years before I knew it was a job title. (laughs) I didn't call myself that. I thought of myself as the eternal summer camp counselor because for 10 summers, I ran summer camps and was the camp naturalist and led bird hikes and told stories about like, uh, I love the Cherokee story about uh, how the hummingbird helped to place the stars. And that's just what I grew up with. So uh, it's always been part of who I am.
0: I've had a chance to read a little bit of your, uh, some excerpts. You sent me a, a PDF of, it sounds like a book that's going to be published and hasn't quite published yet to call the bird tales. I think it was, was that, that correct? Bird tales. the T A L E S. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and uh, they are, it seems like the, the theme of them is they are. From all over the world, stories that explain some so, sort of like native uh, indigenous peoples, sort of stories to some degree, and ancient stories and that sort of thing. Is that a, a fear characterization?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, two things. One is that book is part of a series, uh, including fox tales, bird tales, tall tree tales, a river of stories. And Prairie Fire is the new one that's at the at the printers now. I just uh, approved the proof the other day. Bird Tales is now out as a paperback. You can get it on oh, it Amazon. Is, okay. But it, it it's also all of them I have filmed, and I have a television series on PBS right now called Fox Tales Folklore, and every episode has a different theme um, that kind of weaves together these folktales with science and field ecology. So, for example, one of the recent episodes was Hummingbird Tales. And so I tell a couple of hummingbird stories. I interview a bird bander, a good friend of mine who I met at a hummingbird festival that I've worked at for several years. And uh, and and then there's always some kind of citizen science like, you know, join eBird or participate in the backyard bird count uh, with a real emphasis on getting kids outside. Every episode is kind of a call to action. that involves citizen science. So this series I've been working on over the course of the summer into the fall and it launched on PBS in September. So I'm now about 20 episodes in and Bird Tales was I think the third book in the series. Um, it came out uh, earlier in the fall. I sent you the PDF just because that would be easier for you to get instantly. Oh, and have okay. Yeah. I, I,
0: I guess I assumed that because you sent me that it wasn't available and yeah. I couldn't just download it on Kindle or something. <laughs> anyway, that's fine. I, I read some of them and, and they're, Wonderful tales. I mean, I, you know, not the sort of thing that I read all the time, but really cool stuff. Well, I do not only,
1: I lead bird hikes and I have a bed and breakfast and we host uh, bird watching adventures uh, using my bed and breakfast as a home base. Um, and I also train bird guides. I do believe if you're going to lead a bird hike, if you're working for a park or you're volunteering with the Audubon Society, and I encourage all of our listeners to do that, if you love birding, take the next generation out, get the next generation excited about bird watching, volunteer to lead a hike, assist with somebody who you think is a good hike leader and learn from the best. But I also think it's very important to have a couple of these kinds of stories and poems in your back pocket. John James Audubon would occasionally quote La Fontaine, who wrote fables about birds. And I think it's just part of the tradition to have at least a little piece of a poem. And, you know, when I'm out on the trail, I might not do the 10 minute version of the Iroquois story, how birds got their feathers, but I might reference it in a in a sentence or two, like the Reader's Digest condensed version. Mm -hmm. And I I highly encourage your listeners, if you're out birdwatching, to bring along a couple of pieces of a folktale or a poem that you can recite. You don't have to memorize it, just to have that, you know, as you're talking about this bird. The other side of this, and I'm I'm glad that you you hinted about this, alluded to this in your question, is there is a lot of indigenous knowledge about bird behavior embedded in the folktales. Who knows these birds better than the people who have lived with them for generations? And even though you and I know on, the, on one level, it's just a folk tale, it's a fairy tale, it's a, it's a tall tale or a porquet or, or how and why story, in that story is some really solid natural history, some really important information about either the bird's breeding behavior, their nesting behavior, their migration patterns. Um, one of my favorite that we're seeing now in the winter, I, just, I did four Christmas bird counts this year, um, mm-hmm. snow buntings here in northern Illinois show up from the far north and oh, sure. there's there's a wonderful little folktale in there about snow buntings lullaby and snow buntings courtship and and how they nest on the ground because there are no trees up there and mm-hmm. they uh, their eggs look like little pebbles because it's good camouflage and there's a rook or a, a raven that harasses the snow bunting and the raven is a natural uh, predator on snow bunting babies and sure. so it's a fun little folktale that I Particularly love to tell to my grandchildren, um, but it also has some really good information about snow buntings and their habitat and their relationship to their neighbors. Uh, those are the kinds of stories that I, I I really love to collect.
0: And, yeah, uh, sounds sounds like you are uh, rocking it with the storytelling. I, I love that sort of thing. You're right when uh, when you're on a hike at a national park or something, and, and a and the ranger or the naturalist or whoever uh, has. You know, little tidbits of uh, information that seem more entertainment than educational but a nice mix uh, that really adds to things
1: It does So what are your favorite stories to tell Ed when you're out with your friends?
0: Well you know I have to say uh, they're you know when I'm out with birders, uh, I love some of some of my guests and some of my friends from the Southern California, uh, sort of golden days of birding from say the late 1960s to the 1990s or so. I'm in that generation. And so I have a fair number of friends who are either from California or no friends. Uh, hearing stories of that culture where, you know, these young guys would just go uh, blasting around, doing crazy stuff, discovering, you know, oases and that sort of thing is cool. But, you know, it, they just seem to flow, you know, stories of, you know, where you were, somebody saw this, somebody saw that. Just, just, know not not thinking about it I, i'd have to say i'm not a, a storyteller of more formal rehearsed uh, stories but just you know just talking up a storm when you're on the road is fun
1: isn't that what bird banter is all about <laughs> <laughs> pretty much uh, bantering about birds but I, what you're talking about is actually a whole nother thread uh, a style of storytelling not just the personal narrative but the shared experience um and those stories i think are just as valid when when I'm out, you know, leading a hike or I'm, I'm working with a group and, and maybe training naturalist, um, I can tell stories of my personal experience. And I mean, for example, um, I was leading a hike with 80 people. I usually don't like to take so many, but I my summer riverboat job, uh, I lead a hike every Monday evening at Starve Rock State Park on the Illinois River. And... Uh, on that evening, we had 80 people. And it's a little hard to get everyone on a bird. <laughs> it's hard yeah. to keep them together. And so it is more of a mix of entertainment uh, and natural history, but we did see some good birds. And at, at one point, I heard a barred owl off in the distance. It was sun, It was getting close to sunset. And I got everybody quiet, uh, which is a miracle in and of itself, <laughs> yes. because they heard the barred owl, they got quiet. And I impersonated the barred owl and it called back. And as I'm talking to this owl, I hear this little chatter in the background. And I kind of whispered to the group, I, I think that's a mother owl. encouraging her babies to, to mm-hmm. fly or die. There's just something in her voice, yeah. And and now they're all like, yeah. And you're Doctor <laughs> uh, Zoolittle, and, and you're gonna you're, you're communicating with the birds. I'm like, no. Just as you can learn French or German, you can begin to understand more than just you know who who who, who cooks for you. You can hear something in the tone, and you can begin to uh, read some of that. And they laughed, <laughs> but then 15 minutes later, this trail is a loop. And we're on the other side of the loop, and we hear the owl again much closer this time. And everybody got quiet. we It was a wide place in the trail, so it was easy to kind of huddle mm-hmm. together. Right. And sure enough, we saw three baby owls on the ground. Hopping and flopping, hopping and flopping. (laughs) And the mother was flying back and forth above them. And it was dusk dark. So if these babies didn't get up into a branch, a coyote or a fox or somebody was going to eat them. And they saw exactly what I was talking about. And the really cool thing is, I believe, we watched this one owl, one of the owlets uh, more uh, adventurous mm-hmm. than the others, uh, trying really hard, jumping and flapping, jumping and flapping, till finally you could almost see the surprise look on its face. We were that close. It, it catches wind, and it flaps a few times, and it's airborne, and it lands in a tree by its mom. And in the next moment, the other two, mimicking their sibling, uh, flopped uh, flapped and jumped, flopped, flapped, and jumped, and they caught wind and got up into the tree. And so all three of us I mean, all of us in the hike got to see all three of them take their first flight. And I'm sure those people will never forget that story. I'm sure it's been told a hundred times because I've told it 72. (laughs) And every time I lead a hike there, whether or not we see the owl, if we're lucky enough to hear it, uh, that's a bonus, um, I can tell that story. And so especially if you're leading hikes in places frequently, the Mm -hmm. trail itself begins to be embedded with stories. And this actually reflects back on indigenous knowledge because if you uh, go to Australia, which is one of the few places I have not been, but high on my list, in the outback, they have stories that that help them find their way, the journey tales, um, that this story leads to the next rock and that story leads to the next billabong. And, and you find water if you know the story because the story helps you get there. And I, I do believe that those of us who are fortunate enough to spend enough time outdoors hiking the same trails often, we begin to learn the place in a deeper way. And it's the stories that help us to connect. And then the stories be the, become the bridge that help our, our crew, our, the people on the hike, connect in a deeper way. And so I'm sure that you probably have some stories like that. I've listened to several of your podcasts and the uh, the long-tailed duck you were talking about in a recent episode, you know, that every time you go there, I'm sure you get a little chuckle just to yourself if it's just you and, and your partner out there.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, we were, uh, Marion and I went to Skagit. Skagit. The Skagit Samish Flats are, a, are a, a agricultural area. They grow tulips there in the spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the rest of the year, they're huge muddy fields. Uh, and so in the winter, they are tundra-like. Yeah. And so that's one of the places we can go to see our northern visitors, our rough-legged hawks and yeah. sometimes a jeer falcon and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but anyway, we birded that area for a while. And we had I wanted to come back down at dusk to see some shooted owls, but it was maybe two and it wasn't going to be dark for an hour. So we popped up uh, to Samish Island. And there's a little overlook there that you can overlook a, a fairly deep water area. And uh, I'm a, I'm a lister working on my year list. And this year I wanted to, I know I'm going to be traveling a lot, so I won't, won't get a big Washington list, but I wanted to do a, a, not a big week so to say, but a busy week of birding. Uh, And so we popped up there to look over the, over the thing. And, and this, it's pretty good. There's, uh, you know, white wing scoters and surf scoters and three, three species of loons and some long-tailed ducks. And uh, yeah, but, but there, you know, you know how birders are used to looking, you know, way, way out in a scope. I mean, you know, way out there. Uh, And this uh, uh, less experienced birder, he wasn't young, maybe 50 something came by and, and he said, uh, ha- have you seen any loons? I said, all three species of loons are here. And he said, wow, can you show me? So I, I put one on the scope and he looks and he goes, I don't see anything. I said, it's really far out there. He goes, I don't see it. I look, it's right in the middle of the scope. I go, I don't see it. And I go, huh. So it was just funny. I couldn't get him on a single bird. <laughs> uh... it was a, I mean, and I just had him right there, focused perfectly right in the middle of the scope. And he just, I could not seem to explain that. You know, you have to look really out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just wanted to see it right, right in close. I think it was kind of funny that it's, it's hard to explain that. Well, that's it, the beauty
1: of good optics and <laughs> knowing yeah. how to use them. <laughs> and yeah. uh, you yeah. really do get what you what you pay for in that regard. Uh, for it a is. long time, I was sponsored by Eagle Optics, and uh, oh yeah, and uh, and I had access to some really good material in that regard. Um, but your story also speaks of um, you know that that knowledge that you have about that place because you've birded there so often. And and so my other I guess recommendation uh, along these lines with your listeners is to um, to to go birding with the local experts. And I always try to do that wherever I travel. You know, if I'm coming in for a festival, I might be leading hikes in places I've never been birdwatching. Mm-hmm. And so I'll try to arrive a few days early, not only to scout, but to meet those local experts and go birding with them. So I know what to look for and and where to you know where to be, what time of day, and what we're likely to see. But then if you do that over time in an area, so one of the things uh, we chatted about earlier is I I wrote the Illinois River Road bird map for the Illinois River Road Tourism Board. And we did print a few thousand copies and I still have about 20 in in my library, Uh, but it's all all online now. Um, And uh, I took on that project in large part because it was an excuse for me. To go bird watching at all the best places along the Illinois River, which basically flows from Chicago to St. Louis, with the local expert. So there were several bird watchers, in particular, um, older gentlemen um, that I wanted to spend time with. And so I recruited them as my. Uh, uh, my mentor more than my assistant, (laughs) but -hmm. they were very happy to take me out and show me these places. And, and part of it is I wanted to, to ground truth each of the sites. So I'm not just making a list based on what people have told me. I wanted to go there. I wanted to hike it, but we also had to, you know, uh, log the GPS, uh, location. We had to make sure there was parking and restrooms and, and Mm -hmm. some of those kind of logistics. And, uh, But the whole experience of of going bird watching at several of these places with several different experienced bird watchers really deepened my appreciation of those places so now when i'm leading hikes in those locations i have not only my personal experience to draw from but i have the stories of the people who have been birding there for 50 years uh, before i came and and then taking that another step deeper when we learn the indigenous folktales about birds from those places we're tapping into that wisdom and knowledge not just about the bird and the bird's behavior through the folktale but you're putting the bird and the location in a cultural and ecological context and beginning to see those bigger pictures which i'll admit on most hikes i don't i don't get to go there and talk about all of those things cuz we're really focused on the birds sure but ha- having that in my back pocket so if the right question comes up and the opportunity arises. I have these little snippets of stories I can share. That that again, the story becomes the bridge, and it helps that that birder not just connect with this bird in this moment, but connect with the place in a much deeper kind of way. And so, you know, your story about the mudflats and the and the failed attempt of the uh, the younger uh, birder to get on the bird becomes a teachable moment as well. Um, so that you you have a funny story to share, but also one about you know, optics and, and something that helps people think
0: a little more. So, yeah, all this is made more, more, uh, more current, uh, events by trying to share a scope without touching the scope, you know, yeah, <laughs> in this time of COVID, because he's being careful to look through the scope. But I, I think he, I'm not sure if he wasn't getting his eye close enough. I, it was all, yeah. you know, it's just weirdness that's going on now, is makes it, uh, everything a little more challenging, but yeah. it, it was, it was cool. Uh, so I am excited. One of the things I'm just in my, Hope to do list now that I'm retired is chase migration from you know somewhere down on the Gulf Coast up the Mississippi River over to uh over to you know probably uh, Ohio or something like that to kind of finish up around uh either Point P there uh, McGee Marsh uh and that I think I could be a fabulous road trip but uh sounds like uh i shift the Shifty Illinois river. I think that kind of doesn't quite go in that route, but it would be no, pretty But expensive.
1: if you're swinging through this area, I'd, I'd be happy to meet you someplace and, or, uh, you know, host you at my bed and breakfast and take you out for a day of bird watching. And, and, uh, Uh, I I love that you're talking about this because I've actually done that several times. Oh,
0: you have? Wow. I'll have to pick your brain about
1: that. (laughs) One of the saddest things that happened during COVID is this year, this last year, 2020, was the 200th anniversary of John James Audubon quitting his day job and then traveling from the Cincinnati Museum of Natural History, it was then called the Museum of the Western Reserve, down to New Orleans in the autumn following the fall migration. Oh. And so I had booked 60 performances between Cincinnati and New Orleans hmm. um, in October and November. I was doing, you know, three to five programs a day, almost every oh day. Goodness. Lots of nature centers and science and art museums had hired me. Um, and also, like Arkansas Post is a place Audubon spent time. Uh, their local naturalist friends of uh, were going to hire me to go to some local schools um, I'm hoping most of them will rebook that though. The 201st anniversary is not quite the same as the 200th anniversary. That's
0: exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: But, uh, I love doing those kinds of tours and I, I've, because of my job, I've been able to arrange that kind of thing several times and it is really exciting to like one year I was, I was down, uh, I haven't been to space coast bird festival yet though. They are on my wish list. I was at Rookery Bay, um, which is on the Florida Gulf coast.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: uh, Then I did several shows along the Mississippi River, and then I ended the spring migration at an Audubon Nature Center on the upper Mississippi, north of Minneapolis-St. Paul. And I really do feel like during those couple of weeks, hey, didn't I see that Blackburnian Warbler last week in Louisville? (laughs) Yeah. And uh, it was really kind of fun that way. I, and also uh, another bird festival that's on my wish list is the biggest week ever. I grew up in that area. I was born and raised in Toledo, Ohio. So oh my, of my first birding experiences was fishing at McGee Marsh. And uh, when I first started performing as Audubon about 20, it's been 25 years, but about 20 years ago, I, I got invited to what was then the Black Swamp Birding Festival before it became mm, the biggest. Right, week ever. right. And Ken uh, did his, Ken and his wife did the brilliant job of expanding it. And
0: yes, and,
1: and I followed it closely and I, I still have family in Toledo and in Cleveland. So I try to book at least something in that neighborhood, usually the week before or after the festival, because the festival is a great event. But if I'm not hired to be at the festival, I would rather be there when there are fewer people and the same birds.
0: Yeah, um, I've heard going the week after, the week before, yeah. the week after.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there are certain times where it's better than other times, but I do think that those places are good year round. You know, you're not going to see the big wave of, of migrating warblers, but there's always going to be good waterfowl uh, because you're in the Black Swamp. Um, historically, it was one of the largest wetlands in the eastern United States. Sadly, it's mostly drained in farm field now, but there's been some really great efforts to restore that with the Black Swamp Conservancy. is an organization that I've, I've worked with just a little. Uh, I, I've been following and I'm a fan of. And so if you're there in the middle of summer or the middle of winter, like that was for a, a while when I was a boy, that was the only eagle nest in Ohio. Yeah. There was one nest near the Davis-Bessie nuclear power plant where my father worked uh, for mm-hmm. a short while. He was a, a boilermaker. And I remember as a kid seeing that eagle and uh, just being absolutely amazed because that's when they were at their lowest ebb yeah. and on the verge of extinction. But now you go there any time of year. I think there's an eagle's nest in the parking lot mm-hmm. at, at uh, one of the uh, beachfront uh, state parks there. And you're almost sure to see some really good birds most of the year. But you're right, not, spring's yeah. the best time. And following those migrations are really fun, spring and fall. And I've done that several times just because. Uh, in part, that's how the festival circuit works. You know, sure. the, the earlier in the spring, the festivals are further south and later in the spring, they're further north. And and fall and winter festivals are beginning to pick up. Like one of my favorite is the, um, well, there's two that I I, uh, I worked last year right before COVID. The Wings of Winter Festival, uh, I land between the lakes where the Tennessee River and the Cumberland River come into the Ohio River. There's a lot of overwintering waterfowl. Mm-hmm. and it's a little further south than where I live in Illinois, where we get a lot of the uh, uh, tundra and boreal forest birds who winter here. But mm-hmm. we did see some horn larks at the Wings of Winter Festival. So some of the northern birds will hang out in, in northern Tennessee for the winter. And then the other one just down, downstream, basically, um, I think it's the week before, is uh, the, uh, the Alabama Crane Festival. Uh, oh. That's happening next week virtually, and it's a really great festival. Um, I've worked it probably four or five times. It's one of the only places in the eastern United States where you're almost guaranteed to see whooping cranes um, oh. during the winter because that reintroduced flock um, over winters there. And you can be in a heated uh, glass walled bird blind at the nature center wow. and be 100 feet away from a thousand sandhill cranes, 10,000 ducks. And if you're lucky, if they're there the right time of day, about a dozen whooping cranes. So yeah, you can follow those migrations north and south in the fall, and then look for mm-hmm. those those wintering places. And I, I love that there are more of those kinds of winter bird festivals that
0: I love even more when they invite me. <laughs> sure, nothing so, like a nothing like a paid uh, birding gig. You gotta like that. Yeah. So I'm gonna take a, a a little break and ask you to tell a story. Uh, one of you, you know, one of just you, one of your favorite stories. What 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 comes to mind?
1: Oh. Um, Well, we've talked a lot about about personal stories, uh, as well as the folk tales. Um, You know, I knew this was going to happen, but I still wasn't sure like, which one should I tell? Because there's so many really great ones. Well, I mentioned the hummingbird. There's, uh, I do a number of hummingbird festivals. That's another one of my favorite things. The Mississippi Hummingbird Festival at Strawberry Plains Audubon Center has hired me several years in a row. And uh, every year, because I come back often, and I have to learn new stories because <laughs> it's often the same crowd. It's yeah. Uh, um, so I'm always working on newer ones. But this is this is one of my favorites. How the ruby throated hummingbird got its ruby throat. It's actually a story from Central or South America, a book called Tales of Silver Lands. I'm forgetting the author's name, but he's friends with Carl Sandberg. I believe Sandberg wrote the uh, the introduction. Uh, Tales of Silverlands by Charles somebody. Uh, it's in the back of my book. I always give credit to the source. In the beginning, the hummingbird was a rather plain, mousy-looking bird, kind of gray-brown like a v- lot of other little birds. But one day, the hummingbird was sitting on a on a branch, just resting, when it saw a huge buck, a huge deer, came racing by. And there was something in the eye of that deer. Clearly, it was frightened. It was running at top speed, leaping over logs, ducking under branches. And Hummingbird quickly realized why this deer was running so fast. It was being followed by a puma, a cougar, a mountain lion. And this cougar was so intent on catching this deer, it was watching its prey and not so much watching where it was going. Hummingbird watched it all. As this cougar was running, splat, his paw, huge paw, squashed the nest of a small field mouse. The mother mouse was outraged. Her babies were in that nest. When that cougar ran by, the mouse began to shout at the cougar, you better watch where you're going. And the mouse began chasing the cougar, chasing the deer. Could you imagine? The hummingbird thought this was hilarious and thought that that he would follow. Now, cougars, maybe if they're lucky, one out of seven times they'll catch their prey. But that huge buck had gotten a head start and soon bounded off. And the cougar slowed down. The cougar, tired, stopped by a stream to rest. And finally, the mouse was able to catch up. But by the time the mouse caught the cougar, the cougar was asleep. And the mouse said to herself, Not watching where you're going, I will teach you to pay better attention. And the mouse scooped up a little clay mud from the edge of that stream and very gently put little pat, little pat, little pat of mud over the eyes of that sleeping cougar and then walked away. Hummingbird was watching it all and saw that the sun rising soon dried that mud and that hard clay like stone blinded the panther. When the panther woke up, he began stumbling about, boom, ran into a tree, tripped and fell. And hummingbird thought this was so funny, but took pity on the cougar, flew down and buzzed in its ear and said, please be still. I think I can help. And the hummingbird with its very long, sharp beak began to prick and peck and the mud slowly cracked and the clay fell away. And when the cougar opened its eyes and saw this plain mousy little bird, who had done it such a great favor, the cougar said, one good turn deserves another. You, such a plain looking bird, but you are so important to me, let me reward you for your kindness. And the cougar began to chew some of the grass that was growing nearby. And maybe you have a pet cat that eats grass sometimes when it's not feeling well. And that grass, that green emerald slime with saliva, smeared over the back of the bird, transformed it. But wait, a little more, said the cougar. And with its huge paw, scooped up a bit of the mud from the edge of that stream. And in that mud were flecks of mica and bits of iron The iron ore stained the mud a bright orange red, and the mica reflecting sunlight gave it that ruby tint. You've seen the ruby-throated hummingbird. That ruby throat and green emerald back are still there to remind us of this story, to remind us that it is true. One good deed
0: deserves another. Very cool. You are a storyteller indeed, uh, Brian. (laughs) Nice job.
1: You know, a very simple little story, but I love that, uh, uh you know, it took, what, about three or four minutes to tell. That's something you could use on the trail when you see a sure. hummingbird. Um, yeah. and, and yet it does have a lot of the, the food web, the natural history, the ecosystem, predator-prey relationships. So there's a lot of good, solid science in that story as well.
0: Cool stuff. So you have really made the birding festival circuit. You've probably been to... Just a huge number of birding festivals. I have to say, I've not been a big birding festival goer. I've, I've, uh, you know, know, hiring guides and going on, uh, uh, you know, birding outings with, you know, quote, experts, uh, has almost kind of seemed like cheating to me when I was younger. (laughs) It's like, you know, going with friends, finding birds, that's all cool. But having them just walking around, having them pointed at for you when I, when I was, you know, I'm not a, fabulous birder by any means but when i was more novice just seemed like cheating but i have to say uh now that i'm uh gaining in years and have seen a lot of birds uh it seems like uh, a way more appealing thing to me to do to to, uh, hit a few festivals get some local knowledge uh and that sort of thing so it seems like uh i may i may uh offline uh, catch up with you to to uh, uh give me some recommendations for some uh you know, great trips to go on. You know, as a, maybe as a part of another event.
1: Well, I, 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 in one level, agree with you. It is, I think, more fun to go out. Honestly, I lead hikes all the time, and I love leading hikes. But I would rather go out by myself or with my wife. Or now that I have grandbabies, my my two year old toddler loves bird watching, <laughs> and we'll, I'll put her in the stroller and we'll go for a walk in the neighborhood park. And I prefer to go bird watching with just one or two close friends. But there is something magical about a festival that you get to spend a long weekend with your tribe. And Mm -hmm. and, you know, whether you're a beginner or a very experienced bird watcher, when you go to a festival, you get to go on trips with the local expert who knows where to catch that rare uh, local bird. And the other thing is, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a twitcher. I don't chase the rare vagrant. Um, I would rather see the native bird in its native habitat. And so if I see a blue sprouse, uh, a blue <laughs> goose, a blue sprouse uh, spruce, I was thinking of the tree that's right outside my yeah. window here, the blue spruce. if um, if I, I want to see you know something like that, I want to see it in its where I'm supposed to see it because then mm-hmm. I know it's healthy and it's vibrant and I can observe behavior. But I always do recommend that if you're going to that kind of festival, and I love going to those festivals and, and uh, scout them out. There's festivals all over the country at most any weekend that uh, you go and you 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 pay it a little bit extra because it's well worth having the local guide. But then plan to stick around for a couple of days or come a few mm-hmm. days early because the same birds are there without the crowds.
0: Exactly. And
1: so the festival for me is as much a people experience with my tribe as as it is a bird experience. But you do get, you know, maps to the best locations and you get to go there with people who know what they're talking about and you get to learn. And, you know, even though I've been doing this for uh, 40 years, I still feel like I'm I'm uh, uh, well, I used to joke for a long time. I, when I first started performing as Audubon at these festivals, I used to say, I'm not a real ornithologist. I just play one on stage. <laughs> you know, yeah. But I can admit after, you know, 25 years as Audubon, I, I can't say that honestly anymore. But then, you know, you you hang out for a while afterwards and you go back to those places without the crowd and you you can have the time um, that you're not on an itinerary. You can sit quietly for an hour in this wetland or in this forest and really spend time with the bird in its context. So I am a big fan of the festivals and encourage people to to seek them out, but also then to, to either go early or stay late
0: yeah for sure that's been my experience too uh, i think going going to the festival and then staying after is is a great it has a lot of really good advantages first of all uh you get to see where people went so you know where the good places to go are even if you didn't go on that trip you you know, kind of find out where they went and they find the good birds. If you are a lister, you know, you f- get, usually get one or two uh, really hot birds that someone get, you know, you get all those really good birders in one place. They're going to find some really good birds. Uh, so no matter what your, uh, what turns you on, whether it's the rare birds or the, the spectacle or the, the social aspects, they've pretty much got it all. Yeah. So you have birded all over the country. I saw it and, you, and you you told me you'd birded all 50 states. That's that's cool. Tell me some of your favorite places to go.
1: Well, I did finally get to Alaska last uh, well, year and a half ago now in the summer. Um, but I went with my brothers and they're not birders at all. They're more fishermen. So we did a lot of fishing and I did get to see some cool birds. But I I, um, I also write for Birdwatching Magazine and I love the column hotspot near you i've had two in that uh column and i have two more that are in process and my emphasis has been hot spots very near you um, one of the things that that i love about ebird is you can open up a map wherever you're traveling and it will show you the hot spots and then you can click in you can see who's seeing what where but i also love that experience of having a place that you go often so one of the things that I did during COVID, I actually began a couple years ago, but COVID uh, has really ramped it up for me, is literally burning, bird watching in my backyard. Um, mm-hmm. I, I own a three-quarter acre lot, not very big, but I've planted about 40 trees and shrubs. Uh, I know that you're also a big fan of uh, agroforestry, and I, I have lots of fruit and shrubs that feed birds as well as people. Um, I also cool. own two acres on the other end of town. I live in a town of 100 people, Bishop Hill, and I run <laughs> birdwatching trips out of my bed and breakfast. But uh, every month for several years now, I've done a formal bird count, a bird survey of my town. And I, I have the same route that I walk every time. So there's some semblance of uh, scientific uh, scale or, or uh, uh, a metro continuity. that I'm working with, yeah. continuity. And I try to do it the same time of day, shifted slightly because sunrise changes um, and it's really been fun to get to know that not only am I likely to, you know, see a Baltimore Oriole or Northern Oriole at this place, but I now know where they nest, and I and I've seen their nest a couple years in a row. And having that kind of local knowledge of your community. So for me, my favorite place is, you know, my neighborhood. And, and I walk this little two mile circle around town. I can circle the whole town in less than two miles. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also live really close to the Illinois and the Mississippi River. So one of the trips I do every spring is called birding between two rivers. And we'll spend a day going down the Illinois and another day on the Mississippi. And uh, on the Illinois River, there's, there's two places I try to catch on a very regular basis one is Hennepin Hopper. It's a restored wetland that the Chicago Wetlands Initiative bought a couple of farms that used to be a floodplain, farms that used to be a lake most of the time, and then they built a levee and drained them and, and uh, tiled them back in the 30s or 40s. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hennepin Hopper is now a lake again. And the, it's managed for waterfowl, but there's an incredible variety of, uh, of warblers and shorebirds, Uh, It was one of the first places that I saw a black neck stilt in Illinois. And Emoquan is very similar and further south, and it's the Nature Conservancy's property. And I believe it's one of the largest wetland restorations in North America and certainly the largest in the Midwest. And again, it was an old floodplain. It was uh, actually called Thompson Lake. And it was one of the largest fisheries in North America. And you living on the Northwest coast cheat in that you have salmon coming into your streams. (laughs) Um, But if if you ignore the Columbia River, I believe that the Illinois River was the largest fishery in North America. Wow. Um, Because these backwater sloughs were great breeding habitat for fish. And literally train loads, train cars filled with fish would be harvested on a regular basis and then sent to markets back east. And what was caught this morning in Illinois, could be on a table in Philadelphia within 48 hours. Wow. But then they drained it. They put in tiling and a levee and pumped all the water out and they farmed it. And for a while, Wilder Farm was the largest farm in Illinois. And it was a huge feedlot. They fattened cattle for Chicago and the hog butcher and butcher of the world. But the Nature Conservancy bought it. I want to say just a little more than 20 years ago. And uh, they turned off the pumps and it flooded instantly
0: hmm. and
1: they began managing the wetlands and the upland forest and prairie. And it was the first place in Illinois in a hundred years that black stilts have nested. And if you haven't seen the black neck stilt dance, It is one of the most phenomenal bird dances. The male will come up right next to the female and stomp his feet really quickly. And if she responds, then she stomps her feet really quickly. And then the two of them are stomping their feet side by side, and they both running in place for a moment, um, stomping their feet. Then they run about 10 steps forward. One curls right, the other curls left, and they come back together, drawing a perfect heart shape in their dance. And, very and cool. On the Pacific Coast, you probably see a lot of black neck stilts more than we do here. But
0: they, stilts, but I haven't seen that. Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. They have the the black and white like a tuxedo, uh, black neck and white front, and and yet they're wearing hot pink leggings. It's the brightest pink, mm-hmm. especially in the spring. In their in their very noisy guitar. birds. Yeah. Very
0: noisy birds. Yeah. So
1: I I would guess back to your original question. Um, Hennepin Hopper and Emmaquan are two of my favorite places to bird. Um, they're both in the bird map that I, I drew up for the Illinois Audubon Society and the Illinois River Road Tourism Board. And they're both uh, designated internationally significant birding areas because of its importance during uh, uh, migration. Actually, for the Christmas bird count this year, I was right across the river from Emmaquan and I did Chautauqua National Wildlife Refuge. And that is one of the few places in the Midwest where Arctic shorebirds Will rest and refuel for a week mm-hmm. every so it's spring. A and fall.
0: spot, very cool. Yeah, yeah, those places are spectacular. We have a Bowron Basin here, Grays Harbor in Washington, which is one of the, the super important shorebird stopover spots on the Pacific Flyway. And uh, yeah, it it's spectacular to go see now, but compared to thirty or thirty-five years ago, oh my goodness, the the decline in numbers is just mind blowing. But uh-huh. it is fabulous uh just unimaginable to see so many shorebirds swarming around
1: well that's the cool thing it it, it is depressing when you know that you know several billion birds are gone but the cool thing is we can turn that around and because we've done it with eagles and duck hunters buying land to preserve for ducks Mm i'm a i'm actually a big fan of ducks unlimited i've I've oh I, i agree we we've done it successfully with birds that have economic value like ducks or our national symbol eagles we know we can do it for other birds and so with the restoration of hennepin and uh and Emmaquon and some of the other places along the illinois river we are beginning to see numbers like we haven't seen before i mean i counted a few hundred thousand snow geese and greater white front geese on my christmas bird count the other day and and it wasn't my territory it was across the river in fulton county but one of my friends saw hundreds of trumpeter swans. Mm-hmm. Um, that territory was mine a couple of years ago. And I remember seeing this big white patch out in a cornfield. And I'm thinking, well, it hasn't snowed in a couple of weeks. It's odd that it'd still be snow in the middle of the field. Usually it's just in the ditch on the north side of the road. And I thought it was snow. And I put my binoculars on it and I'm like, oh, my God, those are, those are swans. And then I was with a couple of friends, uh, Tracy and Rick, and we got out the spotting scope and I started counting. And when I got to 100 trumpeter swans, you know, mm -hmm. thank God I was wearing a hat because it literally blew my mind to think that 70 years ago, there were not 100 trumpeter swans alive in the world. Yeah. And here I am looking at, I think the count was 129 that day. 129 trumpeter swans in one flock, just right there in the middle of this field, right in front of me. Um, so we know that we can make better choices. And that through this kind of restoration work and through the Christmas bird counts, we can keep track of what we're doing. We can monitor the progress we're making and working together, uh, begin to turn it around. That's my hope.
0: Well, terrific. Brian, I want to give you a chance to, to sort of tell me about the books that you've published. You, you kind of told me briefly, just sort of outline what they are and how people can find them.
1: Well, thank you. Um, I have two book series that I've been working on during COVID. Um, I don't believe myself when I say I published 16 books last year, a book a week for a while. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Except that all of this material was already written and sitting in my laptop. I I basically took all of my scripts from my performances, Mm -hmm. uh, did some editing, um, hired a, a proofreader and a graphic artist and designer, and I published two different book series. One is called History in Person which is, uh, I call it an unauthorized autobiography or Chautauqua style program. So basically John James Audubon wrote his own autobiography and all I do is act as editor and clip and paste it together. So I have in the history in person series because I'm trained as a high school science teacher and I've been making a living as a a historical scientist reenactor. I've got John James Audubon, Gregor Mendel, Meriwether Lewis is one of the newest ones Charles Darwin, and then you know some other historical characters. And every book comes with a bibliography recommended reading and a link to the film so you can see the performance and an ebook and audio book. And actually the audio book is available on my podcast, which is Foxtails International, and also on my YouTube channel, which is Foxtails International. So when you buy the book, you get the, the film and, and audio book for free. And then the other series, which is Bird Tales that we heard earlier, it's a collection of folk tales. So there's five books in that series now. The first one was A River of Stories, which is the Illinois River. Um, there's Bird Tales, Tall Tree Tales, Fox Tales, and, a, uh, and the newest one, it's still at the printers, is called Prairie Fire. And it's a uh, prairie folklore and natural history. All of the books in the Fox Tales folklore series are a mix of folktales, true history, natural history, poetry, and song. It's like a performance in a book and, mm-hmm. and it does come with a uh, link. So of course you can get them from my webpage, Foxtales INT short for international and tales like stories, <clears throat> but you can also get them from Amazon or, or wherever you get your books, your podcast, your on YouTube or whatever. I, I, I have to back up just a moment and say my primary goal with this big project is we know that teachers and students are struggling, that forcing the world, and one estimate I heard, 10 billion students around the world are now doing virtual education because schools around the world are shut down. And I do tour the world. I've performed in Colombia and China and Korea just in the past couple of years. So I wanted to provide quality material to teachers and students Something that uh, adults will enjoy as much as the kids they might be reading to. Something that teachers and armchair historians and birders can enjoy in the comfort of their living room, as well as their kids and grandkids to help connect them. And it's all available on every format and every device because we can talk about the digital divide and how students are having trouble getting access to all this online material, or we can do something about it. And so my goal was to do something about it. To make it available on every platform and every device so that every student has access to this material. And the thing that's been most heartwarming to me is um, a number of grandparents have bought the complete set of books as a donation to their grandkids or to their local school or library. And that's been the, the the biggest success as well as the most heartwarming reward with this project. And then beyond my wildest dreams, my local PBS station saw some of the video and said, we want to run this on our educational streaming channel so i now have two tv series history in person and fox tales folklore that are on pbs so
0: i don't know how P- does pbs a local pbs channels available all over the place so do you, how could if somebody wanted to watch okay. those how could they find them
1: yeah the easiest way is to go to my youtube channel fox tales international and you need to spell it out fox tales t a l e s international um on youtube and uh That's the easiest way for people around the world to see them. Um, Right now, it's only airing in Peoria, Central Illinois. Um, But I've had really good conversations with PBS stations and other uh, markets. Chattanooga, Tennessee, interesting enough, has already Mm. reached out to me. And and, uh, so I'm hoping it will go national sometime soon.
0: That would be cool. I'll make sure that I put uh, I for every episode I do a blog post, and sometimes they're brief, and sometimes they're more in detail. But every, I'll put a blog post up with uh, with links to that YouTube uh, channel, and maybe some maybe I'll embed one or two of the YouTube uh, stories in the in the blog post so that people can watch them there. Uh, I think that would be fun for people to do.
1: Yeah, I think Hummingbird uh, Tales is uh, one of the series. I, I I'm sure it's on the YouTube channel that your guest would would most enjoy.
0: So. Sounds great. Uh, well, I have had a blast talking with you. Uh, I think uh, maybe a future episode is in mind when we can talk more. I think you've got a lot of stories that people would be love to hear. Uh, I am going to definitely uh, catch up with you about uh, birding the uh, Mississippi River area if I uh, do that thing, and maybe I'll spend a night at your Airbnb. That would be great. I'd love to host you. Thanks for being a guest today. I appreciate it, Brian. Take so care. Thank you, Ed. Well, that wraps up the Bird Beater Podcast number 88 with Brian Alice. Enjoyable time talking with Brian today and did help me remember how cool it is to really get familiar with birding places. I always boggle that as we go places, I know the next story that will come along because we're driving along a place with a birder. I've birded that area before, and one of us, either I will say or they will say, I remember a few years ago, there was a jeer falcon right on that rock over there. Or we always get uh, sharp-tailed grouse just around the corner here or uh, whatever. It's always... Yeah, you know, the, the stories come back. You always look at the same places for the same birds. And just amazingly, sometimes you find them in the same place the same place. So uh, stories are an integral part of the birding community. And it was fun to talk with a, a real pro storyteller today. So Brian Ellis, thank you so much for being on the Bird Banner Podcast with me. I hope you all enjoyed. And if you have a favorite birding story that you'd like to relate please leave it in the comments section of the blog post that I put up associated with the Bird Banner podcast on birdbanner.com. I'll leave a link to that podcast, that blog post in the podcast notes of the podcast, wherever you see a podcast feed. Uh, it'll also be on birdbanner.com, the website. Uh, so thanks for listening and until next time, good birding, good day.